0: Just be you, you don't have to blend into to um, what people think you're supposed to be. Uh, you'll find your group of people and if you don't, it's okay. Um, always stay busy. There's always something to do in high school and procrastinating is a strategy if you know how to use it. <laughs> um, just make the best of it, honestly, because I used to say I hated high school. Like I wanted to graduate and get out, but I miss it and I wish I would have had like my track season, a couple more things to do and just being able to be with my group of friends. So. Easier to instead of wasting your time trying to not get all your work done, do your best to get all your work done that you can. Because in the long run, it'll be worth it. Just work hard and do your homework. <laughs> Honestly. Uh, just to study and learn all you can. Really. Um, I say glorify God and all that you do. Uh, do your homework. Have have structure. Um, just to. Uh, take advantage of all your opportunities in high school, because you never know, you know something like this will happen again. Um, I would definitely say that senior year surprisingly comes faster than you think. Um, I feel like for so long, it's like something that's so far out that you never really feel like it's real, and then all of a sudden, you're in senior year, and then it flies by before you even realize like you were a senior. Um, and so don't take your time for granted. My favorite Crossroads memory what would it be? I would say probably van rides on the Louisville mission trip. Um, Louisville any year. Oh <laughs> boy. Um, every Sunday night with all of you guys. <laughs> Aww, that's, Aww. that's us. That's great. Woo. Cleaning the hill. Mm, the missions trips to Louisville. I think when we had the cri- my, when I went there for the first time for the Christmas service. Probably my brother getting baptized. I'm probably being involved with the worship team. The Louisville mission trip for sure. As you move into this next stage of life, what do you think you're most excited for? Um I'm excited for college and seeing where God leads me. Doing it with friends. Just to see where God takes me and his plans for my life. Um just being able to stay on like top of my schoolwork. I'm really motivated to like Keep everything together and just like keep my grades up. So I'm excited to see how well I do. Um, I get unlimited meal swipes. <laughs> oh, okay, <all> right. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Um, probably just like going to college and getting my nursing degree. Um, just graduating college. <laughs> uh, <laughs> leaving Shelby. Oh shit. Um, for the future, I'm really excited because I am going to Florida for college. Um, going to college. Yeah. Getting a job, getting out into the real world. Getting a job? Well, yeah, we're here to celebrate you. And we also have a song for you that we've been practicing by William McKenzie. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, welcome Crossroads. We are so glad you're able to join with us on our online campus this weekend. Uh, we, are, we are celebrating something special. We had a great time of worship, but as you just saw in this video, this is a special time for us. This is a time to, to honor our graduates, honor those seniors who have, have gone the distance and are, are getting their diplomas. It's a time that we want to, uh, to honor them, celebrate them, and to, to pray for them. Uh, let me explain a little bit about the video that you just saw. Uh, we went around house to house for our seniors. We, uh, we gave them a gift. Uh, we found out what their favorite ice cream was and gave them a half gallon of their favorite ice cream and balloons and we cheered and, and we asked them some questions and we prayed for them. Um, you also noticed that we played Pomp and Circumstance. That happened at every house. We found out that Kenzie was able to play the saxophone actually the day that we started. So she practiced all day and, and played it upteen times uh, as we went house to house, so it was just a great time of celebration. Uh, we have some outstanding young people in our church who, uh, who are leaders, who are uh, going to, to, to make a huge impact not only in the world, but specifically here in our church and in our, in our area and throughout the world, so we are, uh, we are excited about that, and we want to just take a moment to celebrate them and pray for them, so if you would join me in prayer. Uh, Lord, we are so grateful for these students. We're grateful for the, the class of 2020, and we celebrate their accomplishments. We celebrate their dedication. We celebrate uh, and honor them. But Lord, when we do that, we know that, that all of that really is is celebrating the gifts that you've given them. We're celebrating you, Lord, that, that you deserve the praise and the glory. So as we as we honor our students, Lord, we also recognize that we're honoring you. We we ask that you would uh, provide for them, that you would walk with them, that you would lead them in the in, in paths that that would glorify you, that that would paths of righteousness, paths of holiness, paths of of, of leadership, Lord, and that they would have an impact for you and for your kingdom. Uh, we we celebrate the class of 2020, uh, such a special year, such such a unique year, Lord. But we know that uh, you deserve the glory, you deserve all the all the praise. So we we honor them and we honor you. In your name, amen. Uh, We are going to ask you to do something a little different today. Uh, We have had the hashtag Crossroads at home, but special for today, we are going to add hashtag Crossroads graduates. If you would please take a picture with your family to celebrate our young people who have graduated, some type of celebration picture, um, and post that with the hashtag Crossroads graduates, Uh, we would love for you to be part of that celebration as well. Uh, we are super excited about the reopening of our, of our physical campuses on June the 7th. Uh, we will be opening uh, Crossroads Park Avenue with five different services. One at nine, one at 11, one at one, one at five, and one at seven. And the, the reservations for your spots have opened up for that, so please get online. Uh, remember to register you for your service and to register uh, your children for their services. Um, There is no children's ministry or middle school ministry at the seven o'clock service. Our Shelby campus and Lex campus will have services at nine and 11. Um, And we will be having high school ministry at three o'clock. We have that little bit of window in the middle uh, where we're able to do that so our high school students will all meet at Park Avenue at three o'clock. Remember also that students will be going into their new grades for the 2021 school year. So if, if they're finishing fifth grade, they, they move to sixth grade and, and so on. So some of them will be moving, moving to a new ministry and we have, uh, we have activities that we're planning here before June to, to help prepare them and to help connect them. So we'll be, we'll be getting, that in, look, getting that information out. Keep an eye out for that coming up. We are continuing with our series, hashtag asking for a friend. So if you would, would you please grab a Bible uh, and open to Romans chapter 6 through 8. We're going to be in and out of that whole area. Uh, if, you, if you do not have a Bible at your house, please join the, uh, the chat and let one of our team members know that and we will, we will make sure that we get a Bible out to you. Um, but our... our, our uh, Message for today is titled, Why Do I Continue to Struggle with Sin? You know, throughout, throughout our time at home, my, my girls have started to look on Amazon, started to do some shopping on Amazon to, uh, to find some things that they wanted. And recently, one of my daughters needed a pair of shoes, so she, she looked online and she found this this new pair of shoes that she wanted and we ordered them and she was so excited when they, they delivered them. Uh, she is currently a fifth grader and, and it made me think, uh, made me think back to when I was in the fifth grade. Believe it or not, I actually have a specific brand new Shoe story to go with when I was in the fifth grade back in 1894. So, what happened was it was the first year that we had an organized basketball team, and I had brand new Nike high-top shoes, and, and I, I I I just loved those shoes. They were they were the coolest. They were they were all white and and it it was the style of the day and i, I just i just loved those shoes and, and i would take them home after practices and i would i would get out the the oil and i would rub them down and clean them off and try to keep those as spotless as i could you know and, and i would we i would only wear them to practices and games i would never take them outside and I, I i just wanted to keep these shoes so clean and so perfect um in fact one game uh i had Taken my shoes and I, I took them out of my bag to put them on, and when I had cleaned them the time before, I had take the night before I had taken the laces out, but I had I forgot to put them back in, so I had my basketball shoes with no laces. So I had to play in my street tennis shoes that game. Um, my parents have reminded me of that story often, over and over again, to take care of take care of details. But I wonder sometimes if we don't live our life like that, like we have these the these shoes. We have our, our Christian lives where we have these shoes and we, we're just afraid to get them tainted. We're afraid to get them marked up. We, we, we work really hard to keep them clean, but but we can't. They get scuffs and they get marks and they get... Eventually, all of my shoes become mowing shoes. You know the shoes that, that you wear when you're lawn mowing that end up turning green. So, you know, what what does it look like to live the Christian life well, because we know that these these marks are coming, these failures are are still part of our lives. So that's kinda what we're gonna be talking about today. We're unable to keep them clean, but, but will I be able to keep them clean enough? Will I be able to keep my life clean enough? Now let's be clear, we're talking about this in the context of a believer. You know, because if someone is worried about struggling with sin, that, that tells you that they have, they, they have an interest of following in Christ. So we're, we're looking at the, the sin struggles of a believer. But we need to remember something. As a believer, as a believer, what that means is that we have, we have victory in Christ. That Christ on the cross took our sin upon him that he took all of our sin upon him, and and as he took that, he transferred to us his righteousness. That, That we were made righteous in the eyes of God because of what Christ did on the cross, and that's what makes us a believer, is that we recognize that we can't do it on our own, but that Christ is our only answer. But that still doesn't tell us how to deal with sin in our lives. It doesn't, tell, it doesn't explain, okay, I understand that I'm forgiven, but now how, how do I go about living that out and wh- how do I handle that failure? Why do I continue to struggle with sin? Well, let's look at some of the, some of the instructions, some of the words that Paul wrote in Romans chapter six. in verse two, In verse two, Paul explains to us that we are dead to sin. That we are dead to sin. In verse six, he says that our, our old self was crucified with Christ. Are you getting this idea that, that, that the sin part of us is dead, it's gone, it's taken care of, it's, it's over? In verse seven, he says that we are no longer enslaved to sin, that we, are, that we have died and we have set, been set free from sin. In verse 11, that we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. And these words are so reassuring and so true because Christ has paid that price. Verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you. Verse 18, that we have been set free from sin. We've become slaves of righteousness. And verse 22 repeats that same idea that we have been set free from sin and we've become slaves of God. You know, such an encouraging passage. If you jump over to Romans 8, It says, for the law, this is in verse two, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. And in verse nine, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. In fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. And these are are passages that are so encouraging that, that, that deal with our sin as we are dead to sin, that we have a brand new life that, that, that sin has been taken care of, that sin is dead, and we are now alive in Christ. But as that hashtag says, I know these things are true. I know that, I know that what Romans 6 and Romans 8 say is so true because of, because of what Christ has done. So why do I still struggle with sin? Why, why isn't it gone? Why isn't it taken away? Shouldn't, shouldn't it be gone? Shouldn't I no longer have to deal with that? Well, this, this past weekend, as I was preparing for this, I had done, I had done studies. I don't, I don't depend on this as my sole source, but I asked our middle school students that very question, why do we still struggle with sin? And they had some really good answers. Um, it, was a, it was a good discussion, just a few minutes, not, nothing too long. But the next day I received an email from one of our students. And he had had developed this argument. I wanna read to you what he wrote. He said, I don't know if you remember indirect proofs from geometry. By the way, I taught math for 20 years so I know exactly what indirect proofs are from geometry but we'll go on. But basically, you prove one statement is true by proving another one is false. I took the question why do I still struggle with sin? And turned it into a statement. As, followers of, as a follower of Christ, I still struggle with sin. So I wanna prove why that is true or necessary by proving this other statement to be wrong. This statement, as a follower of Christ, I no longer struggle with sin. So he's gonna try to prove that that statement is wrong. If we can prove the second statement false, then the first statement is proven correct. So he, he referenced a verse in 1 John 1, 8, which says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. He said, that proves that as a Christ follower, I no longer struggle with sin is a false statement. Since that second statement is false, that first one has to be true, that as a Christ follower, I still struggle with sin. He says, so now we can use the fact that being a follower of Christ doesn't make us sinless. As a follower of Christ, why do I still struggle with sin? He says we have to because in order, not to we, in order to be sinless, we have to be perfect. He quoted another scripture from the book of James. He said, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check but only Christ is perfect. He had two more scriptures that he quoted. It's Psalm 18, verse 30. It says, as, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. And his point was that only God is perfect. We, we can't do that. And he finished with this passage from Romans 3, uh, this verse from Romans 3, saying, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have to struggle with sin as believers because in order to be perfect, in order to be sinless, we would have to be God. Now ironically, I started an apologetics course, seminary course, this very week, uh, this past Monday. And apologetics is defending the faith, defending the gospel, uh, making arguments. So. I believe that this student has a future in apologetics. I'm gonna put him on speed dial as I finish up this class over the next eight weeks. But what does scripture say about dealing with sin in the Christian life? You know, we have what we just read from Romans 6 and 8, and it's so encouraging that, that sin is dead, that we are alive in Christ, that we no longer need to live the old way But did you notice that we read from Romans 6 and we read from Romans 8, there's something missing and that's Romans 7. It's right in the middle and I believe that that Paul, inspired by God, put this right in the middle of those those great passages to remind us, to to teach us how to deal with sin in our lives as believers. So if you would, would you turn to Romans 7 with me? We're going to read starting in verse 14. This is our main passage for the rest of the message. It says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that it is good. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's go ahead and let's unpack that together. We need to understand that the very first thing Paul does is he explains that, that this, is no, this is no fault of the law, that he's not blaming any of his sin on the law, that, that he, he spells this out, He says the law is good, the law is spiritual, the law is good, and the law is delightful. God's law is spiritual, good, and delightful. But where do we get that? Look at verse 14, it says the law is spiritual. Not the flesh, and the flesh is the opposite of of following God. Flesh, Flesh is connected with sin whenever Paul uses the word flesh. Verse 16 says that, it says that the law is good. It's not sinful or at fault in any way. And in verse 22, it says that the law of God is a delight in my innermost being, in my soul, in the depths of who I am. I love the law of God. I delight in that. So there is nothing wrong with the law of God. It, the law is perfect. So Paul's point here is that The law is not the problem. It's my keeping of the law that is the problem. The law is not the problem. My keeping of the law is the problem. Paul is saying, I love the law, but I don't keep it. The law is spiritual, but I am flesh. I have that that sin within me. I am sold under sin. I don't even understand myself and what I do. He said, I can't even do what I want. I can't even do the good that I wanna do. So I end up doing the evil that I don't want to do. And he uses these words, sin dwells within me. Indwelling sin. He uses that word dwells four times. Once in verse 17, once in verse 18, once in verse 20, and once in verse 23. So as a believer, how is it that we have this sin within us? You know, We just read from Romans six and eight that, that sin is dead and we're alive in Christ. So how is it that, that if the Holy Spirit is dwelling in me as a follower, that sin is dwelling within me? As, it, it, it just, they almost seem to contradict And you can feel the struggle. You can feel the anguish that Paul is going through in Romans 7. You can feel the wrestling match, the tension in his words. The same man who wrote, I'm no longer enslaved to sin. I died and I'm set free from sin. Is it the same guy who's saying, sin dwells within me and I, I can't win that battle. Sin dwells in me. How can the same man have written both of these? Not only did he write both of them, he wrote them in the same book. And not only are they in the same book, they're, this Romans seven is bookended by chapter six and eight, it's right in the middle. How, How can this be? And as I struggled preparing with this and wrestling with it on my own, I believe that Paul, through his personal experience, is addressing dangers in the Christian life and the way that we handle sin. Specifically, he is addressing the dangers of denying that sin exists in our life as a believer or Christian perfectionism. You know, the, as our middle school student reminded us, we are not going to be perfect important to remember what Paul is doing here in the book of Romans. He's making an argument for the gospel. He's explaining to the Roman people that all are sinners and fall short of the glory of God and deserve God's wrath and punishment, but that that punishment has been exchanged, that punishment went on Christ, and and Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us, has been transferred to us, and that they are free from the bonds of sin and death. So why Romans 7? Paul is pouring out his heart about his sin so that we we can see a trap that the enemy has set. You see, if we're not careful, even as believers, we can can fall into a trap of self-righteousness. See, the the trap of self-righteousness is that there is no such thing as self-righteousness. Because as soon as you attach self, it is no longer true righteousness. Our righteousness can come solely from Jesus Christ. That our, our righteousness is totally dependent on him. And when we try to, to live that out, it, when we try to project our own righteousness, we have filthy rags, or in, in my case, mowing shoes. As a follower of Christ, I cannot measure up to the holiness and righteousness of God. I cannot meet those standards. And any righteousness that I have is not of my own making. It is the gift of God. Yes, the Spirit dwells in us as believers. And the believer has been moved from death to life by what Christ did. But in that process of becoming more like Christ as a believer... That process is, again, worked out by God, but it is not an instantaneous process. And it is not a full process until we meet Him. We meet our Savior. So what what Paul is writing about is a, a reminder that even as believers, we have a desperate need. One that only Jesus Christ can fill. So, we are never going to achieve this Christian perfectionism. And when we do, that self-righteousness becomes a, becomes a sin in itself, and we become judgmental of others, and, and it's a trap set by, the, set by the enemy. But there's another part to this. There's another part to this. Many of us recognize, many of us recognize our failure, that we are not righteous on our own. But the other end of that is that we despair, which leads to giving up the fight against sin. That if we're never going to be perfect, why why try? That if I'm never that if I'm still going to have failures and I'm never going to achieve that level and Christ has already Christ has already made that exchange, why fight the battle? And I believe that is is also what Paul is addressing here. He's addressing, how how do we approach that battle? He's very clear that we are not to give in to sin. In the previous chapter, his his words are, are we we supposed to continue in sin? By no means, absolutely not. Uh, I'll give you my, my updated translation of that. Don't be stupid, no, we're not supposed to continue in sin. But we're also to, to recognize that, that even though we're not going to measure up to God's level, that, that our, our sanctification in that process, we're going to fail, that that is no cause to give up the fight. That despair, lead, that we don't want to let despair lead us to give up the fight. We don't want to give in. We'll never, we'll, we'll, we'll never be perfect, but we continue to strive to improve, to get better. In fact, it's more than just a striving. What is it that our response is supposed to look like? What are our responses to sin? You see, it should be different as a believer. Normal response to sin is, I just, as, as a non-believer, I just hate the consequences. If I have to deal with the consequences, then I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm gonna stop my sin. But as a believer, it's different. As a believer, it's different. How should we respond to sin, knowing that Christ has paid that price and that we're following him? For the believer, Paul shows us this way in Romans 7, that we're, that we're supposed to battle, that we're supposed to, that we're supposed to take sin and we're supposed to hate it. He uses the word, I hate what I do that we're supposed to grieve it, that you can, you can feel the angst in what he's saying, you can feel the, the, the heartache, that he, he's not saying, oh, I've given up the fight. It's, exact, it's the exact opposite. He's like, I have failed and, and I hate that. I hate that part. He, he says, I hate it, I grieve it. He doesn't diminish it in any way. He doesn't understate it. He doesn't hide it. He doesn't point blame somewhere else. He doesn't make excuses. He loathes his sin. He grieves it. And because of that hatred, he does not make any provision. He doesn't make any excuse. He doesn't make any claim that he himself can overcome it. He hates it. You see, I think what we can learn from Paul here is that we're supposed to make, we're not supposed to settle and make peace with sin. Do not make peace with sin, but rather we're called to wage war with sin. That we're not called to, to ever accept it, that we're not called to ever give in, that we're never to give up, that we're never gonna quit. That as we fail, we will get back up that we are at war. Paul makes no excuses. He leaves no room for acceptance of failure, even though he's speaking of his failure. He speaks of how sin wages war against us, and that imagery is is throughout all of his letters. He urges us to put to death the old self. In another passage in Ephesians, he talks about putting on the full armor of God. In no way does Paul ever say, "I can't do this, so I give up the fight." It's okay. The reason that he never gave up was he understood where his victory was, and it wasn't in himself, it wasn't in Paul, but he knew the solution to his dilemma. He knew that there was only one way. There was only one way. What is the solution to sin in the life of a Christian? It's in that verse where he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is our hope. He is our only hope. How do we deal with sin in our lives? We hate it. We grieve it. We wage war to prevent it. And in the end, we have a Savior who we know covers all of our sin, that he fills us with forgiveness and grace, and he covers us with his righteousness. But that doesn't change our role in the battle, that we never give up. Well, we have this Holy Spirit in us, and we have this, Paul says, this sin in us, and it seems, they almost seem contradictory. You see, we, sin, sin is supposed to be dead within us. Well, an illustration of that: when, when we were on a mission trip, uh, we had we had chicken for dinner, and the way that uh, the way that they prepare chicken is not that they go to the grocery store and, and just buy chicken and, and chicken breasts and things like that. They they get a chicken and they they butcher the chicken, you know. And we've all heard that saying of a chicken with its head cut off, and it, you know, when you. It, it, it runs around still after it's even dead. And, and that's, a, that's a pretty decent illustration of what's happening here, that, that even though I'm dead to sin, sin still is part of, those nerves are still driving me, that's still part of what I am. But that in no way am I to ever give in to that. That God is, God is sanctifying me, he's making me more and more like him. And I'm never going to be, never going to reach the finish line on my own. But the finish line is when I die, I'm going to, to, to be presented before Christ and say, You are my only hope. I, have, I, I bring nothing of value of my own other than you, what you have done for me. That our that our failure, that our failure reminds us and drives us back to Christ. So should we continue on in sin? Absolutely not. We never give in, but we recognize that when we do sin, we have one that covers us. No matter how long we live, we will never achieve the righteousness and holiness of God. However, we must remember that the Holy Spirit is at work within us, indwelling us. We talked about sin dwelling in us. Well, the Holy Spirit indwells us, sanctifying us, conforming us to the image of Christ. He is preparing us and is walking with us. As we do battle, we are not on our own. It says that when we are tempted, that God always provides a way out. And we will not live perfectly. And when we fail, we are to hate that and grieve that and and long and pray out, what hope do I have? The only hope is in you, Christ. But when that glorious day comes and we meet our Lord and Savior, the last of our fleshly sin will be destroyed and we will have victory, but that victory will not belong to us, but to Christ Jesus our Lord, the victor, the champion, the one who overcomes all sin and destroys it. Would you pray with me? Lord, we... We want to recognize the seriousness of sin in our lives. In no way do we ever want to to understate our failure. We never want to accept our failure. We never want to give in. We never want to make any provision for the flesh. But Lord, when we do fail, we recognize that we have in you our hope our salvation. We have your righteousness imputed to us. We have your righteousness transferred to us that our sin has been taken care of. Lord, Lord, energize our minds that we might recognize the the devastation of sin, but that also the, the glorious reconciliation of that through you. Lord, may we never take sin lightly. Lord, eliminate it from our lives. Make us more and more like you. Lord, keep us humble. Keep us, keep us, help us to keep in perspective our failure and your victory. Lord, as believers, may we represent you well in what we do and recognize that you are the victor. May all of, our, all of our sanctification, all of that process of you making us more like you, may that bring you glory. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.